2: you know it is eh, no longer by now down.
0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to Tumbling Down by the Perfect Children, this week's featured Ohio musical artist. Stick around to the end of the podcast and we'll tell you all about them, how to find their garage soul sound, and where to see them in person. But for now, let's get that campfire going. We've got a new mystery to explore. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years reporting for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: So I happen to know you're pretty excited about tonight's Armchair Detective. I am. All right, tell us about him.
1: Well, Mark J. Price, he has been writing about Akron area history for the Beacon Journal for, oh, I don't know, a decade or more. I mean, literally every week. He pulls out some fascinating little-known piece of the area's past and chronicles it in such a thorough and entertaining way. So I'm super excited to have him weigh in on this one.
0: (laughs) Well, now you've got me excited, too. But before we have him on, I guess you better give us this mystery.
1: Oh, yeah, I can do that. And, Steve, this one has it all. Money, sex, power, jealousy. And it all begins with a poor, innocent woman named Rose Cable. Rose was a lady who seemed to have it all. She was a wealthy society matron. A couple of days away from her 48th birthday. She was the wife of Duber Cable, a prominent contractor and president of his firm, the Cable Company. Not that kind of cable. Okay. It wasn't <laughs> contracting. Or, okay. No. Time Warner, no. Okay. <laughs> the couple, they lived in a beautiful Tudor-style mansion on Fulton Road, Northwest in Canton. They had two grown children, both doing well, an 18-year-old son they called Buddy. He attended Riverside Military Academy in Gainesville, Florida, and a 19-year-old daughter, Jane. She was a sophomore at Heidelberg College in Tiffin,
0: Ohio. Oh, all
1: right. And Rose might have had an empty nest, but she kept busy filling her days with a variety of social, civic, and charitable activities, including leading the Bible class at the First Reformed Church. This was not the kind of woman who collected enemies.
0: More like a socialite type of person. Absolutely.
1: But on March 11, 1937, something happened that revealed to all the world that not everything was perfect in the cable house. At 11.18 p.m., someone aimed a shotgun at the window of the breakfast room where Rose's slight form was silhouetted and pulled the trigger. The only other person in the home was Rose's 70-year-old mother, Pauline Biter. Moments earlier, Rose had completed her nightly ritual of taking her canary cage to the breakfast room table and covering it with a cloth. Pauline had been with her, and she had just turned from Rose and taken maybe three steps toward the kitchen when she heard what sounded like an explosion, the shatter of glass, and her daughter's scream. Uh. She turned in time to see Rose fall to the floor and pitch forward. Her daughter was writhing, and blood began to pool around her head. Uh. At first, Pauline thought whatever had just happened, it had caused her daughter to hemorrhage. She picked up the phone and tried to call the family doctor, and when she failed to reach him, she called the police for help. Waiting for them to arrive, Pauline ran to the neighbors and they followed her back home. A second neighbor also heard the gunshot and Pauline's cries for help and they ran to the cable house. Only then did they realize Rose had actually been shot in the neck. She was bleeding out, her jugular severed. Police recovered about a dozen black shotgun pellets of a size commonly known as birdshot. Rose was taken by ambulance to Mercy Hospital, where she was pronounced dead just shortly after midnight. Rose's husband wasn't home at the time. Duber had been in Cleveland that day, supervising the excavation of a new $15 million strip mill for the Republican Steel Company. So he spent the night there at a hotel called Carter House, and at the time his wife was shot, he was hanging out in the barroom. He'd gone to his room around 1 a.m., and he got the call at 2. He hurried home. The first clue that investigators focused on were footprints in the snow, one of which was just three feet from the breakfast window. It was a man's shoe, a size 10 and a half, with sharp treads of a rubber heel that suggested the shoe was fairly new. Within an hour, police took their first suspect into custody. They had learned a cousin of Rose's, a man named Harry A. Anderson, had been visiting the house that night. He told police he left shortly before the shooting, boarded a bus at about 11 p.m., and went directly to his rooming house, where police found and arrested him at 1 a.m. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Unfortunately for Harry A. Anderson, his shoes matched the size and style of the prints that were left in the snow beneath the breakfast
0: room window.
1: Actually, though, that was a very common size, and they were very fashionable,
0: trendy shoes. I thought you were going to tell me he was, that's kind of the way he walked out or something, you know, in that area.
1: No, you know, and it was really weird because the family, Pauline, who was, you know, still there, said, well, no, he was visiting us. We had a real uneventful evening. Why would he walk out of the house, turn around, and shoot her with a shotgun? And the police, they still kept him in custody for a couple of days and grilled him. But, you know, after a couple of days, they realized, well, there's no way this guy did it, so they released him. Early on, police were pretty settled on the idea that whoever shot Rose had targeted her. It would be unusual for a random prowler to be walking around with a shotgun, for instance. And there was no attempt at robbery or breaking into the house. As Rose was being rushed to the hospital by ambulance, police had already started a systematic search of the neighborhood, looking for empty shotgun shells. They didn't find any. But they did find a couple of potential witnesses to something very suspicious. Betty Chafin, a 16-year-old girl who lived next door to the cables, and her visiting friend Elizabeth Kratz said they had seen a dark coupe driving down the street several times the day before. They had sat in their house and watched it looping the block from Hmm. their front window. That same car had driven down Fulton again on Thursday night, just a half hour before they heard the gunshot. And this time, the car had its lights off, and it was creeping slowly. So that was a pretty good clue. Another clue came a few days later. 12-year-old Eldon Yost was walking around Lake Cable when he came across an empty shell from a four-ten gauge shotgun. Lake Cable, by the way, have you heard of Lake Cable? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty...
0: Yeah. I, I think I fished there.
1: So this is a... a- Man-made lake built by I Duber did, Cable yeah, I and his that. brother Austin in the 1920s. It was uh, intended to be a resort real estate venture. And
0: if you go down there, it's kind of like you see some houses that look like they're on an island. They okay, like road that goes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty
1: cool. yeah. It's it's a real nice uh, residential area now, and it Lake Cable. It's named for the Cable brothers. Anyway, young Eldon he popped the shell in his pocket and forgot about it for a few days until he pulled it out and showed it to his father. Aware of Rose Cable's murder, the father contacted police. Of course, there was no way at this point to know if the shell was relevant, but detectives did think the shell was fresh because it didn't look like it had been lying outside for a long time. There was another reason not to completely dismiss the shell. Turns out, Duber Cable once had shells just like it. He told police they had been stolen along with a short-barrel 410-gauge gun from his car several months
0: before his wife's murder. Huh, that seems kind of convenient, but...
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, Well, and that's not all Duper revealed. He soon confessed that he'd been having an affair for some seven years. As a matter of fact, for the past three years, he'd been paying $250 a month for rent of a five-room apartment. In Akron. For his mistress. For his mistress. That's okay. Her name was Teresa Ludwig Bale. She went by the name of Dora. And Duber had set up Dora in Akron's North Hill neighborhood, this swanky building called Hill Chateau oh. on East Thomas Avenue. It's over there uh, near Popeye's Chicken, if you're familiar oh, yeah, with yeah. that area. Okay. Yeah, it's still there. I don't think it's swanky anymore, but back then it was swanky. <laughs> Upon learning this, Police hurried to Dora's apartment with a search warrant. They didn't find Dora, but they learned a little more about the setup. The tenants at the building knew Dora and Duber as Mr. and Mrs. John Sherard.
0: So, assuming they were married. Yes. Okay.
1: And Dora, she had a reputation for being very charming and a fashionable dresser. Duber was described by tenants as crabby looking, but well-dressed. <laughs>
0: He had lots of money.
1: He, exactly. I've seen his picture. He is crabby looking. Their love nest was well furnished and it featured an expensive cabinet bar stocked with champagne and fancy liquors. They took pictures of the of the liquor bar and put them in the paper. Oh, And they had frequent parties. Police would soon learn that more than a dozen Akron, Canton and Cleveland businessmen used the apartment for their own affairs. I'm presuming dora wasn't home at the
0: time right okay did you ever see
1: did you ever see that jack lemon movie called the apartment
0: yes yes (laughs) exactly exactly like that
1: yes well dora she was 45 years old she was twice divorced she'd separated from her second husband the same year she moved into the akron love nest dora and duber had been together the morning of his wife's murder had stopped by her apartment for breakfast before heading to that Cleveland construction site, the pair never fully agreed on what happened that morning, but there appeared to have been a spat. Duber would later say Dora had become upset that Duber was paying more attention to his wife lately.
0: Oh no! God, Evidenced
1: God. by how, right there at the apartment in front of her, he had picked up the apartment phone, called an auto dealership and ordered a new car to be delivered to his wife for her birthday that Saturday. Duper liked giving cars away as gifts, had given several to Dora during their seven-long-year affair, and the most recent of those cars was a 1937 black Dodge Coupe. Ooh, I have to look that up. Not unlike the type of car those 16-year-old girls had seen looping the neighborhood the day before Rose's murder. It didn't take long for police to find Dora. She was in Steubenville at the home of her friend, Bertha Mumaw. Dora had no alibi. She told police she wasn't feeling well, so she'd been home alone Wednesday and Thursday night, Thursday night being the night of the murder. She insisted her car had never left its spot in the garage. She said she had only left for Bertha's home on Friday morning because Bertha had injured her ankle and needed help caring for her ailing husband. She said she'd tried calling Duper on Friday to cancel plans they had for a Friday evening dinner. And when she couldn't reach him, she called Lester Higgins, one of those business buddies who frequented their parties with his own girlfriend, to pass on the message. Higgins didn't tell her about Rose's death. She didn't learn about it until a day later when a friend had called her at Bertha's house in Steubenville to read her the newspaper story about the attack on Rose. So she called Lester Higgins back to ask how Duber was doing. And Higgins told her, lay low and don't return to that apartment. Uh Higgins later verified this conversation with the police. Well, Dora was detained and questioned for days. So was Duber. Rose's funeral was held on March 15, four days after her death. She was buried in West Lawn Cemetery, Duber's doctor ordered bed rest for him, saying the stress was resulting in a serious cardiac condition. But the day after the funeral, police took Duber back into custody, and the grilling of both those star suspects continued. Absolutely. Dora and Duber's stories didn't always mesh. Duber said Dora had asked him repeatedly about the gun that had been stolen from his car, though he didn't know why. He also said he'd been trying to break up with Dora that she had asked him to divorce his wife and marry her, that he had refused it, and that things came to a head at a party in Cleveland the week before. He said he repeated his desire to end the affair with her the morning of Rose's murder during that breakfast stop on his way to Cleveland, right before he ordered his wife that birthday car. Doris said hogwash. She would never mentioned the gun, and that their relationship was solid and ideal. She said the fight at the party the week before had nothing to do with him. It had to do with her disagreement with one of the other mistresses who were in attendance with their businessmen escorts.
0: Oh, this is like a soap opera. Oh, yeah. and yeah, Great Gatsby stuff.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. She said uh, they had patched things up that same night, so they were solid. To support her story that all was well between them, she said Duber had even given her... $20 that morning to buy a cocktail table for the apartment. And an Akron store verified the purchase. Why would he be telling her to order furniture for their love nest if he was breaking up with
0: her? Yeah, nothing says that was long a longer relationship point. than a cocktail table.
1: That was a good point. Right. Well, after a couple of weeks, both Duber and Dora were released on bond. Dora gave an interview to the Akron Beacon Journal, saying she was leaving seven perfect years behind and was ready to forget the past and start anew. Reporter Helen Waterhouse described the moment. Quote, She smoothed her gloves on her knee, prettier than her pictures would indicate, and well-groomed. She confessed she hadn't yet bought her Easter outfit. She wore a dark green, wide-brimmed sailor hat, which framed her rather delicate features. A black fox fur was thrown over the shoulders of her green night suit. She wore black Oxford ties and sheer stockings. There were two diamond rings on the third finger of her left hand and a ring on her right hand. Helen Waterhouse, by the way, was a very famous reporter to be get it. She, Really? Yeah. And she was she great, great with yeah, the details. She sounds awesome. She was. But things weren't quite finished with Dora and Duber. More than a year after Rose's death in May of 1938, Dora drove to the home of Duber's brother, Austin Cable. She was there by invitation. Apparently, in the previous month, she had called Duber and his brother some 20 times, saying she had given Duber seven of the best years of her life, and she wanted money or marriage. Although Duber was at home during this visit, it appears Austin took the lead. He told Dora that the family believed she was responsible for Rosa's murder. He said police had evidence that someone had called Dora at home that Thursday night, the very night Dora said she had stayed home because she wasn't feeling well, and those phone calls went unanswered.
0: Meaning she wasn't home. She wasn't home.
1: Dora scoffed at the accusation. She repeated her demands for money or marriage.
0: So love or money, that's what she wanted. Yes,
1: for love or money. And she refused to leave. Austin had had enough. He grabbed Dora by the arms, hard enough to leave bruises, forced her onto the patio, and closed the door with an admonition to never come back. And Dora left screaming, You haven't heard the last of me. You haven't heard the last of me? That's it. Well, when Dora left, she drove her black Dodge coupe to the home of her sister, Edna, who lived in Conneaut. And the next morning, Dora woke up, made breakfast for her, her sister, and her brother-in-law, saw them both off to work, and she went into the garage, pulled out her sister's family car, pulled in her own coupe, shut the garage doors, tied them together with a rope, stuffed a blanket under a crack in the door, and started the car. She walked to the rear of the automobile, lay down on the garage floor in her flowered dress, and used the folds of her coat in such a way as to force the tailpipe fumes into her face. Uh. Her sister Edna found her body when she came home for lunch. Wow. Dora was gone, but she was not done talking.
2: Oh,
0: she said, you haven't heard the last of me.
1: they, they had not. Inside the home, tucked into the family Bible, Dora had left behind two notes, one to her family, talking about the disposition of her personal property, and a second one, a bombshell, to her attorney, William Quinn. In that letter, Dora said Duber had told her he had hired men from Cleveland to kill his wife, that he had bragged about how he had only had to pay $200 for the deed. And the affair, it hadn't ended with Rose's murder. Dora said she continued to see Duber, that they traveled to Pennsylvania to keep their meeting secret. And to prove it, she left a long list of dates, hotels, room numbers, and the aliases that they used so police could go back and confirm them. Wow. She said Duber only recently had been pulling away from her because Austin was raising hell about their continued relationship. And ultimately, Duber wasn't even strong enough to protect her the night Austin threw her out of the house. I can't go on and not tell it, she said in the letter. I can't take the stand and tell this. So I am taking the easy way out. And at the end of the sensational note, she said she felt Duber, quote, should pay the price. And so, police arrested Duber again. But they still didn't have a confession. They didn't have a gun. You know, right,
0: there's they very little evidence. They couldn't
1: find hitman. They had no evidence. Besides, there was still so much Dora needed to explain about herself. Remember her friend Bertha in Steubenville? Yeah. Well, Ohio Bell telephone records confirmed that Bertha was the one who had tried to call Dora at her Akron apartment the night of the murder three times starting at 10, 11 p.m., and the phone was never answered. Bertha also told investigators Dora had been behaving strangely. She was wearing blonde wigs and losing weight in an effort to disguise her identity, though she never explained why. Bertha said Dora had also told her that she'd been taking shooting lessons and had become quite proficient. And Bertha said her own conversation with Duber who had paid her a friendly visit after his wife's death, but before Dora's suicide, left her with the impression that the two lovers were still an item and always had been. Duber was released and went on with his life. He married again, divorced, and married a third time. He died in 1954, and he's buried in Westlawn right next to Rose.
2: Hmm.
0: That's a good story. Well, I suppose it's time to bring in our armchair detective.
1: With us tonight is Mark J. Price. Hi, Mark. Mark has authored a couple of local history books, Lost Akron, and The Rest is History, True Tales from Akron's Vibrant Past. He also writes a Monday history column for the Akron Beacon Journal called This Place, This Time. How long have you been writing that column, Mark?
3: 21
1: years. This month oh that's you're not old enough to have been writing a column for 21 years i started when i was five (laughs) okay okay now it makes sense hey there is no doubt that akron has the best recorded history of any city in ohio thanks to your efforts but had you ever heard of this case before
3: i had never heard of that case this was so surprising to me when you brought this to my attention never and i've gone through a lot of microscope in my day
1: you have and i once saw a huge list on your desk of columns to come so i love that we (laughs) could find something fresh for you so let's just jump to the main question who done it we got duber dora a complete random stranger a hitman what do you think
3: my belief is it was a hitman and the question is who hired the hitman and I think it was her husband. Yep. Yeah, he had like the perfect alibi. He was in Cleveland. So obviously you could say, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. But the thing that really uh, got my attention in reading up on this case was in the Akron Times Press, there was a report of a roughly dressed stranger who stopped at a nearby restaurant about an hour before the shooting. He asked for directions to the cable home.
1: Oh, what a great detail that's got hitman written all over it
3: maybe inept hitman you didn't do his homework beforehand, but the footprints outside the window most definitely were a man's
1: you know i I agree that Duber seems the most likely. he certainly had the means, the motive, the opportunity, and especially if he hired a hitman, I mean he could have any alibi he wanted if he got someone else to pull the trigger.
3: And you know right. the, and he probably had access to a lot of unsavory characters just in the the construction field that he was in up in Cleveland in the nineteen thirties.
1: Oh probably good point.
3: Rough,
1: oh yeah, good point. And he had the money. I mean I'm if he's maintaining Dora in an apartment, I'm not sure where else she would be getting her money from.
3: Right. Two hundred dollars a month, I think it was for that place.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and the one thing I can't shake is the knowledge that these two clearly kept seeing each other for the year after Rose's murder. So, if Duber had killed his wife, there would be no reason for him to stop seeing Dora. After all, he would have killed his wife to get her out of the way. But if Dora had killed his wife, she would have to be Duber's number one suspect. And would he continue seeing her?
3: Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think you would. Yeah. And um, that, that chateau on North Hill, I grew up on North Hill. I never knew about that scandalous past that it had.
1: You'll never be able to go past that building without thinking of it again.
3: No, the Hill Chateau, I mean, that was over by Finley. I guess it's still there. It was by Finley Elementary School, and I lived very close to there. They said there were up to five or six Canton businessmen who were keeping paramours there at that apartment complex
1: yeah what a reputation we didn't even know that building had
3: yeah i I wonder what the landlord was thinking when all these canton men kept showing up to pay the rent
1: they were probably thinking keep paying the rent (laughs) (laughs) I will sell to anybody as long as you keep paying the rent (laughs) oh my gosh well listen there are some things that are hard to ignore about Dora and I don't know how to reconcile them first of all we know she didn't answer her phone at home the night of the murder I mean her own friend ratted her out on that do you buy her Mm a story that she just wasn't feeling well so she didn't bother to answer or was there another reason this
3: is is. But I wonder if maybe she was up in Cleveland anticipating a night of romance with her boyfriend.
1: Oh okay. And she just maybe didn't that's why she wasn't admit it.
3: Maybe that's why she wasn't answering the phone at home, is maybe she wasn't home. Maybe she was up in Cleveland at the what was it? The Carter House was the name of the hotel in Cleveland. Maybe she was up there.
1: Okay. And what about the car? You know, the neighbor said they, they saw a car going around, you know, lapping the street, lapping the block, mm-hmm. uh, both the night before the murder and the night of the murder, and it really seemed to match the description of Dora's car. Thoughts on that one?
3: Well, if, if she had something to do with it, if it was a man's footprints outside the window, she must have lent the car under that theory to the hitman.
1: Yeah, that could be. And, you know, if you look at a picture of cars from back then, they all kind of look alike, don't they?
3: Especially in in the dark. They talked about a dark, tube, but they probably weren't a lot of streetlights back then. Probably all cars looked dark at nighttime.
0: Right. Right. The closest thing we have now is the Kia Soul kind of looks like, what, (laughs) a big box. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, they're getting (laughs) that box look back. Right. So Dora killing herself. Did that twist surprise you? I guess it's kind of, yeah.
3: I guess it did. Um, apparently, she thought she was going to be able to use that money and give it to her sister, the uh, the reward money. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know why she did that. I mean, I guess she was just despondent over the whole thing. That was how she thought she could repay her sister.
1: Well, if Duber did kill his wife and started the ball rolling on this, in some ways he's kind of responsible for the deaths of both of those women. Yeah. That's that's a way to look at it. Any chance they were working together?
3: I don't think so. I I think, I don't think so. It seems like one decided to do this and not tell the other one.
1: Yeah, you know, they, at one time or another, each of them was trying to throw the other one under the bus. And I can't imagine you could do that and not have the other person say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, we, I thought we were in on this. <laughs> yeah, you tell the police that, I'm going to tell the police this. Anything else, Mark? Yeah, the,
3: the, the part that, that gets me, the killer had to know her routine. He just had to know her routine. And she would get the canary from the cage and put it on the table every night this was in march it was still very cold
1: that's right
3: so that points to the husband too he knew her routine he knew what she did the the killer was outside the breakfast room at midnight it doesn't make any sense why would you be waiting outside the breakfast room unless you knew your victim was going to be there at midnight to get the canary
1: Yeah, (laughs) that is not the place you would be standing waiting to assassinate somebody at midnight unless you knew they were going to be be there.
3: Right, if you saw lights on in the house, you'd be lurking outside the living room or the front part of the house or whatever for a better shot. You wouldn't know if you were a complete stranger. You wouldn't know that she had this routine of picking up the bird every night in the breakfast room. Well, this, this guy was just a complete scoundrel. He went on vacation... With his girlfriend to Florida for a few weeks. Yeah. And then a few weeks later, his wife came down. And so I wonder what the neighbors thought about this guy who had two different wives during this vacation.
1: Yeah. He takes his mistress and his wife on vacation at the same time, keeps them separated.
3: Just a first rate scoundrel.
1: What a. Back in that day, they also might have called him a cad. <laughs> a cad.
3: What a he cad. Was a cad. So, if anything, he was definitely guilty of being a cat.
0: Yeah. It would... yeah I mean, he, he has so much power, he thinks he can get away with anything. Right. And he might have. Yeah, you're and right. he did. Yeah.
1: Mark, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hey, your books, they're both still available, right?
3: You can buy them at most local bookstores, and you can also find them on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Yeah, they're still in print.
1: And you can also get uh, kind of an addendum to that history by looking at the Akron Beacon Journal every Monday and get a brand new history story, right? That's correct. This place, this time, uh, at the Beacon Journal and on ohio.com. Mark, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Hopefully we'll get you back on here. I, I just got to find another mystery that you haven't heard of, so this is going to be some uh-huh. work, thank but we'll try it again. Thank you so
3: much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the program.
1: All right.
0: that's it for tonight's episode campers be sure to stop by our website www.ohiomysteries.com check out our photos links news clippings and more on this and all of our episodes so paula why don't you tell us a little bit more about perfect children be happy to the perfect children is blues
1: inspired garage soul band out of cincinnati ohio We've been finding some great talent in Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati is full of talent, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, this group is made up of Kristen Kraft on lead vocals and guitar, Adam Shelton on drums, Nick Powers on bass, and Beth Harris on backing vocals and percussion. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Better yet, go see them in person. They'll be playing May 31st at Southgate House Revival in Newport, Kentucky. The band is really busy these days. They are currently recording at Candyland Studios. Backing vocalist Beth Harris has been on tour with Erica Weinerstrom of Heartless Bastards. Nick Powers is also the frontman for the group Static Falls, and they've been busy recording some new music. And Kristen Kraft is co-author of a book just released called Cincinnati Rock Tales, where they honor iconic musical artists and bands with Cincinnati connections by designing a cocktail for each of them.
0: Wow, I'm exhausted on their behalf.
1: Aren't you? Well, the song we sampled at the beginning of this podcast was Tumbling Down, which featured additional backing vocals by Molly Sullivan. Want to give her credit there, too? Absolutely.
0: Well, let's have another listen, shall we? We shall. Turn up the volume and have another sip of your rocktail, or cocktail. Here's Tumbling Down by The Perfect Children. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
2: I'll give you my heart You know it